Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The following episode contains disturbing descriptions of child abuse, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was just before 4 p.m. when a school bus dropped off a nine-year-old girl in front of her home in Queensville, Ontario, a small hamlet one hour north of Toronto. She was excited to get home to show her family the new recorder she had received at school that day. But her mom and adopted older brother were running late from an appointment and weren't at home yet. 20 minutes later, when they pulled into the driveway, the first thing they noticed was the little girl's red bike laying on its side inside the door of their shed. The handlebar and the front basket were bent. Inside the house, they noticed her jacket was hanging on a high peg on the wall instead of a low peg as usual. Still, they weren't concerned. They assumed she had gone to the park to play with friends and would be home soon. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we look back at the disappearance of Christine Jessup, a case that shocked Canada and led to a 10-year legal nightmare for the young girl's neighbor. This is the case against Guy Paul Morin. Janet Jessup began searching for her daughter shortly after 5.30 on October 3rd, 1984. As Janet visited a nearby park to look for Christine, the sky over Queensville took on an exceptional hue, slate gray mixed with orange. Normally, it would have been a stunning sight for residents of the tiny village surrounded by sprawling farmland. But on that night, it felt eerie, a harbinger of the tragedy that was about to consume the tight-knit community. The Jessup family had only moved to Queensville a year earlier, and during that time, Christine had blossomed, joining brownies as well as a softball team, and she started a little business, digging up dewworms and selling them to cottagers who passed through their little village on the way from Toronto to a weekend getaway. After visiting the park with no luck, Janet stopped at the Queensville General Store to buy some cigarettes. And while she was there, she discovered that after school, Christine had ridden her bike to the store to buy some bubble gum. It was about 500 meters from her house on the same street. The petite, dark-haired little girl was last seen returning from the store, walking her bike back up her driveway. Between 7 and 8 p.m., Janet Jessup called police to report her daughter was missing. Within an hour, police and volunteers were searching the fields around her house, as well as the adjacent graveyard. Officers also went door-to-door, questioning residents in the small town. Among the people they visited was the Morin family, who lived right next door to the Jessups. Alphonse and Ida Morin had six children. In 1984, just one son still lived at home, 24-year-old Guy Paul Morin, who goes by Paul. At the time, Paul worked as a sander at a furniture manufacturing company, but he had many eclectic interests from beekeeping to rebuilding old cars. He has engineering skills, he has woodworking skills, he has house building skills, he has wired homes uh, for electricity, he has put wells down 300 feet, he is a very, very good clarinetist, he is a piano tuner, He's a, he's a very interesting uh, individual. 
That's Kirk Macon. In 1992, he published a 700-page book about Paul's case called Red Rum the Innocent. Kirk says the Morin family had a reputation in town as being oddballs. They often did outside chores in the middle of the night. Their house was in a perpetual state of renovation, and their yard was filled with old cars and other junk. At the time of Christine's disappearance, there was a deep trench beside the Morin house exposing the foundation. And that caught the attention of a police officer who went over to ask if they had seen Christine that day. While the officer spoke to Ida Morin, he noticed her son Paul sitting on the couch watching TV, apparently showing no interest in the conversation, which he thought was kind of strange. When the officer asked Alphonse if police could search the house, Alphonse declined, saying there was no need because it had already been thoroughly searched. A short time later, Christine's teenage brother Ken went to the Morin house as well and asked Paul if he'd seen Christine. Paul said he got home from work between 5 and 5.30 and hadn't seen her. Ken also wondered why Paul wasn't out helping with the search, but decided not to ask him why and left. By early the next morning, there was still no sign of Christine, and police told the media things looked grim. At daylight, over 350 volunteers, including teenaged army cadets, joined police to continue the search. They used tracking dogs, horses, motocross bikes, helicopters, and ultralight planes to inspect a 10-square-mile area of farmland and wood lots. The quiet country community of 300 was shocked by the disappearance, and for the townspeople, the clock stopped today. Stores were closed, students were given the day off from local schools to join in the search, and women prepared food for the searchers. It's the type of town where everyone knows everyone else. And residents say if Christine was abducted, it had to be by a stranger. During the search, news got out that Christine's father, Bob Jessup, was in jail, which came as a shock to the residents of Queensville. Janet Jessup had told everyone that her husband was away in California on business, but in fact, he was serving an 18-month sentence for fraud-related offenses. Bob had been caught stealing money from an elderly brother and sister who he was power of attorney over. The day after Christine's disappearance, Bob was temporarily released from jail on compassionate grounds to be with his family. And that caused some people to question if the Jessups had somehow staged the disappearance as a way to get Bob out of jail. Police quickly ruled out any connection, but that accusation lingered in the community for many months. After three days, the search was called off. Nothing had been found, not a single clue or piece of evidence. Christine had simply vanished. The young girl's brother, Ken, was sent to live with family friends. And over the next couple of months, Christine Jessup's distraught parents traveled around Ontario in a compulsive hunt for their daughter. Janet Jessup even began consulting with a psychic but still there was no sign of her. On December 31st, 1984, nearly three months after Christine's disappearance, a man noticed his dog was barking and acting strange in a field north of his house in Sunderland, Ontario, located 56 kilometers away from the town of Queensville. He jumped in his truck and along with his two young daughters went to investigate. They parked near an old tractor path and together walked toward the field where the dog had been barking. Soon, one of the young girls noticed what she thought was a pile of garbage on a wooded trail leading from the tractor path. As her father got closer, he made a gruesome discovery. 
badly decomposed human remains. And nearby, he saw a bundle of clothing and a recorder. It had Christine Jessup's name written on it. For the police force in charge of the murder investigation, this would be their biggest case to date. There were usually only two or three murders a year in Durham, the region where Christine's body was found. And at the time, the Durham Regional Police Force didn't even have a dedicated homicide squad. Detectives Bernie Fitzpatrick and John Shepard would eventually become the lead investigators in the case, despite having limited experience with homicides. How they conducted their investigation would become a huge part of the legal case over the next 10 years. On the day Christine's remains were found, the forecast was calling for a major snowstorm. So Detective Fitzpatrick suggested they put a tent or a tarp over the crime scene. But the inspector in charge said no. Instead, he asked officers to gather as much evidence as possible before everything was buried in snow. I mean, it was intense and yet also uh, pretty Keystone Coppish. Kirk Macon says Durham Regional Police made some pretty major mistakes at the crime scene. They were not covering the area as the as the blizzard came in. There were things that were not uh, that were found that were not removed as possible evidence. There were police sort of running over one another's tracks. There was a poor chain of command. People walking here, walking there. It, it, eventually, what uh, transpired was that uh, amongst the evidence that was missed. Uh, were several of her bones, which weren't found until months later. That's right. Bones were found at the body site several months later. Christine's family, her mom, dad, and brother Kenny, had gone to visit the spot where her body was found. Kenny said he'd been having dreams that Christine's soul wasn't at rest, that something wasn't right. So to humor him, the Jessops went to the body site. And much to their horror, they found several bones, which they placed in a styrofoam coffee cup and drove to a nearby police station. Meanwhile, the autopsy was conducted on New Year's Day, 1985. The coroner determined that Christine had died from stab wounds to the chest. But because her body was so badly decomposed, the coroner was unable to determine if she had been sexually assaulted. At the autopsy, it was also discovered a necklace worn by Christine had a number of hairs stuck to it. One of the hairs was darker and thicker than the rest. This piece of evidence would play a critical role in the legal case in the years to come. A week after Christine's body was found, she was buried in the Queensville Cemetery behind her house. A police cordon held back the public and media as Christine's mom, dad, and brother stood quietly at her graveside. Blowing snow fell as they laid a wreath of 50 roses and Christine's favorite cabbage patch doll on her small white casket. Her parents told the media after the service that they were glad Christine was back where they could watch over her. Hundreds of people had jammed the small Queensville United Church for the funeral. Family, friends, neighbors, and classmates attended the service. Several plainclothes police officers also sat in the church observing mourners. The family's next-door neighbor, Guy Paul Morin, didn't attend the funeral. His parents were away at the time, so they also didn't attend. The family's absence was a source of discussion amongst the people in the small town. And later, some would even suggest it was proof of something even more disturbing. 
In mid-February, about six weeks after Christine's body was found, police still had no substantial leads or clues. Their leads were drying up. Uh, They didn't have any good suspects. Uh, It was becoming uh, an increasingly futile exercise. There was pressure on them in the community in particular. People didn't know if there was a killer loose in the small community. Kirk Macon says Detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard decided to interview Janet and Ken Jessup one more time about what happened the day Christine disappeared, hoping it might dig up some new information. And at that point, uh, one day, fatefully, Janet Jessup uh, made reference to Guy Paul Moran, this fellow across the fence line, which is really only about 20 feet away uh, from the living room of the Jessup house, uh, and how he was a weird, a weird guy, you know, stays up all night, uh, does work, you know, does work in the backyard at four in the morning. He and his father are very odd and furtive. The family's known as the raccoons because of their nighttime, you know, their nocturnal work habits, this sort of thing. So, so he, she pointed him out to the police as someone who was unconventional, strange, odd, and the police immediately developed an interest uh, in the boy next door. That's when detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard began to look at Guy Paul Morin as a possible suspect, about six weeks after Christine's body was found. Fitzpatrick wrote in his notebook, Paul Morin, clarinet player, weird type guy. The comments from Janet, plus the fact that Paul didn't help with the search or go to the funeral, made police suspicious. Detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard wanted to interview Paul away from his family. So they showed up at his house and asked if they could speak to Paul in their cruiser. He easily agreed and spent the next two and a half hours in the car talking with the two officers. They were struck by Paul's behavior during the interview. They thought he seemed too confident and that he had a weird way of talking. Kirk Macon, who has grown to know Paul very well over the years, says he does in fact have an unconventional way of speaking. He does have an interesting sort of almost poetic lilt to some of the things he says and some of the abstract thoughts he has. Some people would call that, see that as as weird. Uh, It also can be seen as sort of colorful and thoughtful. There's nothing overtly strange about it. When the officers asked Paul about his relationship with Christine, he described her as a sweet girl. When they asked him if he had ever hugged Christine or given her a piggyback, Paul said he never placed a hand on that girl. Unbeknownst to Paul, Detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard had set up a tape recorder in a briefcase to secretly record their conversation. But according to the officers, the tape ran out after 45 minutes, so most of what was said during the two-hour conversation wasn't recorded, including a suspicious comment that the officers said Paul made near the end of the interview. They claimed that he said, isn't it sad that innocent little girls grow up to be corrupt? And in the police mind, this sounded like somebody who might have been trying to rid the world of fallen women before they can grow up and be corrupt. Get her now, uh, she'll end up being another corrupt woman. So for him to say that, as I came to know him, I was quite sure what he all he meant was that adults, there's a lot of corruption in the adult world. Children 
as a rule, don't have that. When they're five or six or seven, they're still very formative, innocent, and then the world starts to work its ways on them. That's how he would have described it. That's what he meant. But that certainly was not the way the police, with what was becoming their tunnel vision about him, viewed it. After the interview, detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard came up with the theory that perhaps Christine had gone to Morin's house to proudly show him the new recorder she got that day. And then he used this common interest in music to engage her in conversation and abduct her. So now they had a working motive and theory of how the crime took place. All they needed to do was find evidence to prove their theory. The first thing they did was check Morin's alibi. They confirmed that Morin punched out of work on October 4th at 3.32, just as he said. They clocked the drive to his house from work at 42 minutes. So even if he didn't stop anywhere to shop like he said he did, the earliest he would be home is 4.14. And remember, Janet and Ken Jessup said they arrived home at 4.10 and Christine was already gone. So how could Morin have kidnapped her? But the officers were stuck on Paul's weirdness and they had this theory that made sense to them. The detectives were trying to make the evidence fit the theory and not the other way around. So they went back to Janet Jessup and interviewed her again about the time she arrived home. They suggested that maybe she arrived home later but was too embarrassed to admit how late because it would look bad that she had left Christine home for so long. Detective Shepard even suggested that maybe something was wrong with their kitchen clock. Eventually, Janet and Ken Jessup revised the time they arrived home by 25 minutes, saying they arrived home at 4.35. This new time would have allowed Guy Paul Morin to arrive home at 4.15, grab Christine, drive her to the body site, assault and kill her, and return home by 5.30 when he said he got home from work. While the officers were growing more and more suspicious of Paul, they received some information regarding tests being done at the Center of Forensic Sciences. An analyst by the name of Stephanie Nizhnik made a graphic and disturbing discovery, semen stains in Christine's underpants. With this information, it was confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted. Nizhnik also determined that one hair on Christine's necklace didn't match the little girl so it was assumed that it must belong to the killer. What police needed now was some forensic evidence. If the hairs on Christine's necklace matched Paul, they had their suspect. So here's what they did next. They sent an undercover officer into Paul's band practice, pretending to be a hairdressing student who needed to collect hair samples for an assignment. Three people in the band volunteered to help. One of them was Guy Paul Morin. He let the undercover officer comb and pluck out some of his hair. Those hairs were taken to the Center of Forensic Sciences, where Stephanie Nizhnik took a look and concluded the hairs taken from Guy Paul Morin were consistent with coming from the same source as the necklace hair. But it's important to note, hair analysis is not foolproof like DNA. Similar or consistent with doesn't mean the same as when dealing with hair samples. It didn't seem to matter, though. The hair sample was enough for Detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard. At that moment, Guy Paul Morin became their prime suspect in the murder of Christine Jessup. Nizhnik also told the officers she had found fibers on Christine's clothing. She believed the fibers could have been from the car that took her to where her body was found. 
so police needed to get fibers from Morin's car. After getting a search warrant for his vehicle, they got a master key from a nearby Honda dealership and were able to secretly access the car while Morin was at band practice. They collected fiber samples, which were analyzed by Stephanie Nizhnik. She concluded there were some apparent fiber matches between those in Paul's car and those found on Christine's clothing and recorder bag. With the fiber and hair analysis results, police decided they had enough evidence to arrest Guy Paul Morin. On April 22, 1985, just before 8 p.m., Paul was driving to band practice when he was pulled over by a police cruiser. When Paul saw that it was Officers Shepard and Fitzpatrick, he was surprised and said, Oh, it's you. What's up? When they told him he was being arrested for the murder of Christine Jessup, Paul said, What? You're joking. It wasn't a joke. Paul was arrested and taken to a nearby police station where he voluntarily provided hair, blood, and saliva samples and handed over a small penknife. While he was being interrogated for six hours by police, a search warrant was executed at the Morin residence in Queensville. The house was searched from top to bottom, along with the garage, a shed, and a few vehicles on the property. About 150 exhibits were removed from the house and surrounding property, which were then taken to the Center of Forensic Sciences. But in the end, only one exhibit would be considered significant by the prosecution. A dark gray fiber found on the living room rug. Shortly after Guy Paul Morin was arrested, his family hired lawyers Bruce Affleck and Alex Sozna. Affleck was one of the most famous lawyers in Ontario at the time, and he was thrilled to land what could possibly be the biggest criminal case ever to take place in Durham Region. The first thing the lawyers told Morin when they met their new client was don't trust anyone and don't talk to anyone. They warned him that police would put an undercover officer in his cell or they might try to entice other prisoners to rat him out. Both of those things ended up happening. First, Durham police sent an undercover Toronto officer named Gordon Hobbs into jail to try to get a confession out of Morin. Hobbs told Morin he'd been arrested for murdering a teenage girl at a summer camp in Manitoba. When Hobbs asked Morin about his charges, he refused to talk about it. Regardless, a friendly chemistry developed between the two cellmates. And over the next three or four days, Hobbs and Morin talked easily about music, cars, and movies. Morin told Hobbs about a recent movie he had seen called The Shining and acted out scenes from the movie. And one of them is this scene where this little boy sort of goes into a trance-like state and picks up a knife and is about to knife his sleeping mother and he's going, red rum, red rum. And this, of course, is murder spelled backwards. So Paul's describing this whole thing and, uh, you know, creeping around the cell, imitating the kid, red rum. And then Hobbes says that afterward, uh, later, they had this cryptic dis discussion where he asked Paul, you know, how do you deal with your tensions in life? I mean, it must really get to you, the stress of what you're dealing with and everything. And Paul cryptically said, me, I just read from the innocent. The undercover officer also said that at one point, Paul made repeated stabbing motions to his chest when he asked him how Christine died. Hobbs left Morin's cell after four days because he said he was so frightened by Morin's behavior, who was growing more and more suspicious of the undercover officer. Morin's next cellmate was a man named Robert Dean May. 
May had 11 previous convictions for various offenses, including fraud, writing bad checks, and theft. At the time he was in jail with Morin, he was facing several new charges, including assault and attempting to escape jail. In the cell beside them was another inmate known only as Mr. X. Mr. X had a juvenile and adult record for multiple offenses involving sexual abuse of young people. At the time he was in jail with Morin, he was serving a 60-day sentence for sexually assaulting an older woman who lived in his apartment building. Both men had undergone psychiatric evaluations while in jail that concluded they were antisocial and unreliable. Despite this, both May and Mr. X would become important witnesses in the case against Guy Paul Morin. May said that Morin burst into tears late one night and said, Why did I do it? F, man, F, I killed that little girl. Mr. X said he overheard the late-night outburst from his cell next door. While all of this was happening, Guy Paul Morin's parents were growing more and more unhappy with his lawyers. In their view, Affleck and Sosna had performed poorly at Paul's bail hearing and preliminary inquiry. Now they were starting to sense that the lawyers wanted Morin to plead guilty. So just weeks before Paul's trial was to start, they fired Affleck and Sosna, and in their place, they hired Clayton Ruby. Ruby was a high-profile Toronto lawyer who had recently won freedom for Donald Marshall, who had been wrongfully imprisoned for 11 years in connection with a murder in Nova Scotia. So he came with a promising pedigree. But when Ruby took over the case, he made a decision that would negatively impact Morin for years to come. Ruby asked Morin to undergo a psychiatric assessment, promising the results of the assessment would only be made public if he was found guilty a sort of backup plan or reserve parachute to help prevent Morin from going to jail for life. Morin and his family were skeptical, but Ruby insisted and even threatened to quit if Morin didn't agree to the psychiatric assessment. So in the end, the family agreed. The results were shocking. Two doctors hired to assess Morin both concluded that he was a deeply sick schizophrenic capable of committing murder. Morin and his family were stunned by the findings, but once again, Ruby assured them the psychiatric evidence would only be revealed if Morin was found guilty. Guy Paul Morin's first trial began on January 10, 1986, nearly 10 months after he was arrested in connection with the murder of his nine-year-old neighbor, Christine Jessup. The trial had been moved two and a half hours away from Durham region to the city of London, Ontario, because of the publicity surrounding the case in Durham. Even still, most days the courtroom was packed with curious onlookers. Leading the case against Morin was Crown Attorney John Scott, who came on strong in his opening statement to the jury, laying out the Crown theory that Morin had lured Christine from her home under the guise of teaching her how to play her new recorder. The Crown's case revolved around three major things. The alleged jailhouse confession Morin made to Robert May, which was overheard by Mr. X, the strange red rum comments allegedly made by Morin to the undercover police officer placed in his cell, and the hair and fiber evidence analyzed by the Center of Forensic Sciences. In response, defense lawyer Clayton Ruby said Morin's alleged jailhouse confession was bogus. He argued that May and Mr. X had provided false information to prison officials and police in exchange for leniency in their cases. In other words, uh, it was currency and they were not going to give it to the police unless they got something in return. And what they wanted in return was to get the hell out of jail. 
Kirk Macon says what exactly May and Mr. X received from the Crown in exchange for their testimony has been the subject of debate over the years since they testified. We do know that one of them in particular, uh, Robert Dean May, uh, has since proven to be uh, an absolutely inveterate liar. Um, he is in prison now on an indefinite prison term as a dangerous offender. Um, he's a dangerous person. He's an extremely dishonest person. Um, that has been proven over and over. Uh, deceptive con man. When the prosecution called Sergeant Gordon Hobbs to the stand, another piece of the Crown's case fell apart. Hobbs was the undercover officer who said he secretly taped Morin saying, I read Rum the Innocent. It turns out the audio quality on most of the tapes he recorded was really bad and hard to understand. So Hobbs was only able to transcribe them as he remembered them. Essentially, it was his word against Morin's. The forensic evidence was also called into question when Stephanie Nizhnik from the Center of Forensic Sciences took the stand. She told the court that she compared a hair found in Christine's necklace and a sample of Morin's hair, and she found no differentiation. But under cross-examination, Ruby forced her to admit that the necklace hair was not really a match for Morin's hair. They just had some characteristics which match some characteristics on the shaft of the necklace hair. It was hardly a slam dunk when it came to forensic evidence. As for the fibers found on Christine's clothing matching fibers found in Paul's car, Ruby suggested that could easily be explained by the fact that both families use the same laundromat and live next door to each other. Fibers could easily blow in the air from open garbage cans and clothes on the outdoor clothesline. When the crown rested, Guy Paul Morin was called to the stand. On his way to the front of the courtroom, a pale-looking Morin gave his mother a restrained smile. The courtroom was so full with spectators that extra chairs had to be brought in. Morin was clearly nervous, but spoke in a controlled voice when he told the court he did not kill Christine Jessup. During cross-examination by the Crown, Morin was asked about his behavior in jail when Officer Hobbs was his cellmate. Morin said he didn't remember ever saying that he read Rums the Innocent, but if he did, he was just playing on words, being sarcastic. He said Hobbs simply misunderstood him. Morin admitted he did cry while in the cell with Hobbs, but not because he killed Christine. He was crying because he had been wrongfully accused of murder and his life might be ruined. Before wrapping up his case, Ruby made a decision that devastated Guy Paul Morin and his family. The defense lawyer decided to tell the jury about Morin's psychiatric assessment. Remember, when Morin agreed to the assessment, he never actually thought the results would be made public unless absolutely necessary. Author Kirk Macon. He didn't want to be portrayed as somebody who could, who could have abducted Christine stabbed her to death, thinking that he was giving her life, that he was waving a magic wand over her. I mean, these were the sort of things that were said in testimony by the psychiatrists, and he couldn't believe that these things were being said about him, and that the overall portrayal was he could have done this. While introducing the evidence, Ruby told the jury that Morin still maintained his innocence, and they should not take the results of Morin's psychiatric assessment as proof that he killed Christine Jessup. He said Morin would maintain his plea of not guilty, but he was adding a second plea. If the jury decided that Morin caused Christine's death, they should conclude he was insane at the time. 
Ruby's announcement literally caused people to gasp in the courtroom. Christine's younger brother, Ken, stood up and ran out. Ruby called Dr. Grant Turrell to testify. He told the court that Morin suffers from schizophrenia and has a very tenuous hold on reality. He said Morin could have thought he was touching Christine with a magic wand while stabbing her and mistakenly believed he was giving her life. Despite the confusing psychiatric evidence, Ruby maintained in his closing remarks that the case did not show that Guy Paul Morin committed murder. He said, quote, you wouldn't hang a dog on this evidence. It's just ridiculous. He said the strongest thing the Crown had is that Guy Paul Morin was Christine's next door neighbor and he is mentally ill. He asked, have they got the right man or the crazy neighbor? On February 7th, 1986, following 14 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict, not guilty. Morin smiled at his lawyer after the verdict was read and looked at the jury box and mouthed the words, thank you. The courtroom was stunned into silence for several seconds. Then Morin said, thank you, my lord, to the judge and thank you, jury. He then left the prisoner's box and went and sat among spectators and reporters in the court. Morin's parents weren't in court for the verdict. Christine's parents stared in silence. Their teenage son, Ken, wept openly, clutching the arm of a family friend. Outside the courthouse, Bob and Janet Jessup told reporters they were shocked and disagreed with the jury's decision. Bob Jessup added that the family had lived a year and a half of hell, and now the hell would go on. When Morin met reporters, he said he was very, very happy with the verdict. It had proven that he was innocent. Guy Paul Morin was now free to carry on with his life, but that freedom was about to be snatched away. Coming up on the next episode of History of the 90s, Guy Paul Morin faces a second trial. It's quite possible it could run into seven, eight years. And that's it's just too long. And Christine Jessup's parents continue fighting for justice for their daughter. We are appealing to the government to please consider this family and try to resolve this issue a lot faster than three to four years. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Kirk Macon. The former journalist wrote a book about the case against Guy Paul Morin called Red Rum the Innocent. He has also served as the co-president of Innocence Canada. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can reach me anytime through social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kanzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 